MSW Media. This week, we learned the FBI opened a counterintelligence investigation to determine if Donald Trump is compromised by Russia or secretly working on behalf of Russia to promote their interests above our own. We also learned that Trump took extraordinary steps to conceal his conversations with Russian President Vladimir Putin from his own administration, including taking the notes of his own translator and instructing her not to discuss his conversation with others. What does this mean for the Trump presidency? And what does this mean for the future of the United States of America? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, I have to say this is the most shocking news that I have ever uh, listen to or witness. I couldn't believe it. It's been enjoyable watching you get be shocked on social media. I think a lot of people like me were like, yeah, I could see that. I, I, <laughs> okay. I, I was absolutely shocked. It, it is quite a thing for the FBI to open a counterintelligence investigation to determine whether the president of the United States is a Russian asset. I mean, that is Insane. Okay, when you say it like that, yes, it does sound shocking. It is. I, I, you know, Natasha Bertrand, who was on, I think, on our first episode, said on social media that even if none of this other Trump Russia stuff had happened, this piece of news on its own would be the biggest piece of political news of all time in the United States. I think that may very well be the case. And so I will just say we are going to, we have two amazing guests to talk about this, and mm-hmm. I'm going to get right to them because I think. They have more important things to say about this topic than I do. And one, one of them, uh, Asha Rangappa, is a former counter FBI counterintelligence agent. And John Seifer, mm-hmm. a former CIA officer who headed up the Russia operations for the CIA. I can't think of better people to talk about this topic. Yeah, this is going to be incredible. And I do want to say that. You know, when our listeners found out about our guests, we got in over 450 questions, which has uh, really surpassed any other podcast we've ever done. So I'm going to do my best to uh, get to as many as I can, but I apologize to those I can't. All right. So let's bring in Asha Rangappa. She is known to all of you because she's been on this podcast a couple of times before. But most importantly for this topic, she is a former FBI counterintelligence agent. She conducted investigations like the one the FBI initiated. Welcome back to the podcast, Asha. It is so wonderful to have you back. Thank you for having me. I'm just only sad that it's always, you know, scary news that brings us together. Well, I've got to tell you, as a citizen of the United States, this is the most disturbing news 
that I have witnessed perhaps in my lifetime. And that is saying something. Um, you know, I was in a federal building when, you know, the, the Twin Towers collapsed. Uh, we've had a lot of, you know, difficult times uh, in our nation. And uh, this is really something uh, to to know that the FBI suspects that the president of the United States is a Russian asset and opened an investigation into that. I think that is serious stuff. Um, and I want I want just before we get into questions, Asha, you know, I think one thing that's important for people to understand, I've mentioned already when I was introducing you that you're somebody who was a former FBI counterintelligence agent. And uh, it'll be important for us. And I, and I want to talk about the difference between counterintelligence investigations and criminal investigations. Can you explain that to us? Yes. So counterintelligence is on the national security side of the FBI, which is a separate division than the criminal side. And they are separate divisions because they have quite different goals. Um, in in the investigations that they pursue. So, Renato, you are a federal prosecutor. You work with FBI agents on the criminal side. Criminal agents open up investigations when they come across evidence that, you know, suggests a reasonable basis to believe that someone has violated the law, uh, the federal code, and then they will open the case. And then the purpose of that case will be to gather evidence uh, that meet the elements of the crime. And then once they get to the end of it, they will decide whether they have enough evidence to prosecute the case uh, in a court of law or they don't have enough evidence to prosecute. And that's, that's the linear path that the criminal case takes. On the counterintelligence side, it's different. And you are looking at whether someone poses a threat to the national security of the United States, specifically because uh, they may be working with or being targeted by a foreign intelligence service. So, as you know, as we all know now, there are foreign intelligence services operating in the United States, and when they are executing their goals here, when they're collecting information, when they're um, undertaking operations, they will recruit human assets. Um, that's the bread and butter of any intelligence service to work with them. And so what the FBI does is try to uncover those networks as a means of finding out what these intelligence services are doing, who is helping them. And then the goal is, once they have identified that, to neutralize that the threat. That's the intelligence lingo. And it sounds really scary, but it's, you know, basically uh, – to, to take certain kinds of means to render those foreign intelligence services ineffective in what they are trying to do. So th that's the main difference, and, and intelligence investigations rarely see the inside of a courtroom. They are using very different techniques with different legal thresholds, and they are not really, you know, uh, looking to be prosecuted. Um, sometimes they do in rare cases, but most of the time they aren't. Right. And, and that this is important for people to understand, because I think there's a lot of confusion along this point. Counterintelligence investigations, as you point out, are looking to neutralize uh, threats against the United States from foreign adversaries. Uh, the end goal there would not be an indictment or a conviction, which is what the end goal would be for me when I was a federal prosecutor. And just to be clear, there are 
uh, former federal prosecutors who, who I used to work with who spent their time working with agents like Asha. Uh, I was happy to be on the side where I got to be in the courtroom, uh, you know, uh, trying cases and I got to, you know, um, obtain indictments and things like that. But on, on subjects like indictments and criminal investigations, I have a lot to say and I talk a lot about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I will confess that on the issue, the on counterintelligence issues, somebody that I look to is you, Asha. And I think, it, you know, when we were first starting to appear on CNN and elsewhere, I remember contacting you uh, with, you know, to get your thoughts on counterintelligence issues. And I know sometimes you did that with me on the criminal side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, there, there are two different kinds of, you know, ec- expertise and um, what you kind of get to know. And it's important for people to understand the reasons why a counterintelligence case would not see the inside of a courtroom. So one is that sometimes, uh, you know, they can't be prosecuted. A lot of spies are operating in the United States under diplomatic cover. And so they have diplomatic immunity, which uh, immunizes them from criminal prosecution. So even if the FBI wanted to, they they couldn't drag a lot of these people into court. But more importantly, you know, when you are playing a game of spy versus spy, your leverage <clears throat> comes from not letting your opponent, your adversary, know what you know. So, Renato, if you're spying for Russia, and I'm an FBI agent, and I figure out what you're doing, and I start monitoring you, it is in my interest to keep that under the radar, because then I can watch you, I can see what you're doing. I basically am gathering evidence, and that in and of itself is neutralizing you, because we can thwart you surreptitiously. If I were to take you into a courtroom, I have to lay out publicly what I know. And any intelligence service, once it's called being burned, once their operation is burned or exposed, they will drop it. And then they are going to up their game. They're going to change tactics, change codes, whatever, you know, it is that uh, allowed them to be caught. They're going to do that, and then the FBI is back at square one. So those are the two main reasons that you won't uh, see these become public, because it's really not in our interest to do so, or we just can't. Well, I I think that's really important. And, you know, one thing that I think is also helpful for for folks is to understand— that not everything that may be of interest in a counterintelligence investigation is interesting on the criminal side. In other words, and you can, I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong, Asha, but it seems to me that it's conceivable that someone could be compromised by a foreign power, let's say Russia, and not commit any criminal acts in the United States in the process. In other words, being compromised could lead somebody to commit crimes, but not necessarily, or at the very least, is not necessarily the case that you'd be able to prove that. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. And, you know, let's take a hypothetical example like the president of the United States. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, you saw where I was going with this. So, you know, the, the president obviously holds all of the powers uh, contained in Article 2 of the Constitution, um, you know, to oversee uh, execution of the laws, to determine foreign policy. Now, uh, you know, if if a foreign power has some influence over him, um, it doesn't even necessarily mean that they have to be directing him explicitly. Um, You know, intelligence services work uh, by manipulating people wittingly and unwittingly. And if you are not self-aware enough to even know your own weaknesses, uh, 
um, and also have a lot of very easy buttons to push, they don't really need to be explicit about it. They can just push those buttons and, and kind of play you like a puppet. And so, you know, in the case of the president, if he is compromised in some way, uh, either because he's being manipulated, he's afraid that they have something that they that could expose him, um, you know, and he is then exercising his presidential powers in a way that benefits Russia, as you mentioned, Renato, that wouldn't be a crime in the sense that we traditionally think of a crime. I mean, he can determine, like, he has the legal powers to do that. So, there, But it's still a national security concern, obviously, if his main motivation in using those powers is to do it in the interests of a foreign adversary and not in the interests of the United States. Uh, yeah, I think to me that's something that I want people to understand. It's something I I stayed up late last night writing something about that may that may see the light of day. I I think that what people don't understand is what we call the Mueller investigation. It's really a, a group of related investigations, and the goals of this counterintelligence investigation we're talking about may be reached without necessarily reaching every goal that you might want to reach in a criminal investigation. And I wonder what that would look like, Asha. In other words, could you imagine a situation, I wonder what the, the implications would be, if you know, Mueller finds evidence that leads him to conclude, or at least you know, he can lay out a lot of evidence that would lead most Americans or many informed observers to conclude that, that the president is a Russian asset, but yet... Uh, he's found not insufficient evidence to prove that the, that Trump committed crimes that are related to that. Yes, and I, you know, the the op-ed that I wrote in the Washington Post gets to exactly this. So normally, when the FBI uncovers activity uh, where someone is acting as an asset. Um, of a foreign power. So one of the examples I use in the op-ed is Operation Ghost Stories. Um, Anybody who watches The Americans, uh, you know, these are the real Russian illegals that were happening, um, that were operating here in the United States, and they were not under diplomatic cover. And, you know, the FBI, they figured out what they were doing. So what they would first do is get a handle on how are these people operating, what are their means of communication, um, you know, how are they sending encrypted messages, all of that. Um, But then they would just monitor them, and they monitored them for 10 years. Um, You know, they also had the option you know, they and they obviously decided not to um, to potentially flip somebody. They can flip them and have them work for the United States secretly while they still are pretending to work for Russia or, or another country. Um, you know, they can feed false information back to the host country. I mean, there's all of these ways that you can operate. And when it comes to the president of the United States, you cannot do any of those things. Um, because he is the president. I mean, they cannot I, – I, I personally do not believe that the FBI ever went up on a FISA order on the president of the United States after he became president. Um, you know, they, there are certain things that become difficult to do because he is the consumer of – he is the ultimate consumer of intelligence. Um, he has all of these powers. Um, he has a right to all this classified information. So I think that what Mueller's team would do once they – their job would be to assess the entire situation and basically say we have an unresolved national security threat and they would need to provide it to someone who could take action. And the only body that could take 
realistic action on it is Congress. And one thing I wonder, Asha, what, and it, because this is something I saw some some folks, uh, some of our listeners asking is, what happens if Mueller finds information along those lines that's alarming before his investigation is done? I think that's an interesting problem. So, in other words, does he allow this threat to exist while he completes the rest of his investigation? Exactly. Um, you know... He may need to to complete the rest of his investigation. In other words, I don't think of it as necessarily a discrete thing, right? Um, you know, and at this point, it's kind of exposed. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, you know, it may be that they know certain things, but they still, in order to get the big, the whole picture of everybody who's involved and how it's happening, um, they can't let it be known. Now, I think when they are willing to, you know, um, put their cards on the table, they will do that. Like, for example, when Mueller charged the the 12 GRU officials with hacking into the DNC server, um, you know, that was the point at which he's willing to say, we know every keystroke you've made. And here's here is what we what we know about it all. Um, And at that point. You know, I'm sure Russia has then tried to scrub everything and backtracked and and um, tried to erase its footprint because they want to have plausible deniability. Um, Mueller doesn't want to allow them to do that earlier than he, you know, needs to because he may have other targets that need to flesh out the whole story. Asha, you mentioned that they they wouldn't get a FISA on the president. A lot of listeners are wondering about those kinds of issues when it comes to, you know, his cell phone, conversations that he has, as well as who, who would, they, uh, you know, what approval would they have to get legally? Would, they, would the attorney general have to approve this or the DOJ? A lot of people have questions like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in Renato's thoughts on this, because even though he didn't do counterintelligence, he understands how Department of Justice works. And um, I mean, I just think it would be so politically explosive to have some kind of ongoing surveillance on the (laughs) sitting president of the United States. I think that the purpose of opening this investigation was more to be able to have the legal authorities to explore Trump's relationship with Russia, you know, potentially leading up to uh, the election, um, you know, so that they can get a sense of what is going on here, what are the interests, um, what are what are the ways that this person could be compromised if he is compromised. Um, but I just, yes, it would have to go up to the Attorney General, A. It would then need to go into a FISA court and be approved by a federal judge. So I can tell you if he was or is under FISA surveillance. I mean, that I don't even know what what I would say about that um, because that would be its own uh, shit show, basically, um, and very revealing in terms of what kind of uh, evidence the FBI would have in its possession about Trump. So I will say, Asha, you know, I one piece of it, this whole thing that I do find interesting, and you're right, might be more of the three of us that are going to be talking about this today, probably more in my wheelhouse is um, how what, all these investigations being initiated and how that happened. So one thing that I do find very interesting from this, and I think I talked about the night the news broke when I was on CNN is 
I don't I think at this point everyone can understand and should be able to understand why Rod Rosenstein appointed Robert Mueller. Uh, I mean, could you imagine if you're Rod Rosenstein and you learn that the FBI is open to counterintelligence investigation into the president of the United States to determine whether he's a Russian <laughs> asset? I mean, I would want that to be off not only off to some extent off of my plate on a day-to-day -day <laughs> no, basis. No, it's a hot potato. No, absolutely. That would be a hot potato that you would pass on as quickly as possible. Exactly right. And, you know, one, exactly right. And I also think you'd want it insulated from the president to the extent you could, and that would help that happen. Correct. Um, the other thing I would say uh, on that, and, you know, uh, for a different in uh, interesting perspective from uh, another regular uh, guest on this podcast, Matthew Miller, former uh, J Department of Justice spokesperson, you know, he's talked, uh, an MSNBC contributor, he's talked on uh, Twitter quite a bit the last couple days about how he thinks, he, you know, he analyzes sort of as a power play of sorts by the FBI. In other words, in his view, he's like, you know, the FBI was looking at these issues and was stunned by the firing of their director and decided the way to protect themselves and protect this entire investigation was to make it unkillable by having the subject of it be the president of the United States and have this explosive topic. And so what they were ginger about doing before, because it's such a bizarre, uh, uh, uncharted water, here they were kind of taking a bold step because the efforts by Trump to obstruct the investigation potentially um, suggested that the worst could be possible. So, you know, I saw those tweets by by Matthew, and I wasn't – I don't know that I followed his reasoning exactly. So was the idea that they make it unkillable by making him a subject so that then if he tries to kill it, it automatically becomes obstruction? I think – no, I think what he was trying to say is, just from a softer perspective than that, as a practical matter – that, you know, I, I, what I think he was trying to suggest was, and if you read the New York Times article about this, that, that launched this, that came out on Friday night, I encourage everyone to do it. Uh, I was uh, having dinner and this news was breaking. I was getting text messages and I was frantically reading this story over dinner uh, myself. Uh, you get the sense that the FBI was learning of this information during the presidential campaign and didn't know what to do with it. It was so yeah. unprecedented. It was so crazy. It was so um, uh, unbelievable that they didn't really know how to process this in a way that wouldn't make them appear partisan. And so they you know, were not as active as they could have been potentially in investigating this during the campaign, is, at least my, was my takeaway. Yeah. And so then I think what Matthew is suggesting is— they were investigating this and then we're starting Comey was starting to reveal some of the efforts that they had undertaken to Trump and his reaction was so over the top and suggested that he he was trying to kill the whole thing and so they thought the way to defend themselves would be to to label the, to sort of stake it out that like we think that there's a good reason to believe that he's a, a a Russian asset so that if this ever came to a head and let's say there was mass firings at the FBI or DOJ and the public found out they they you know it it, it would create the, the greatest potential cost 
politically and and publicly to Trump or his allies if if they tried to do that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's possible. I mean, I what I would say is that. You know, I, I agree that they had this information, and it's just it, it's such an unprecedented situation that you don't know what to do leading up to the election. Um, and I think that you know the the firing of James Comey and the Lester Holt interview, where he admits that this is about Russia, kind of gives them the straw that breaks the camel's back. Like they basically have something coming right out of his mouth saying that. He is trying to quash an investigation into an attack by a foreign adversary. And that, you know, they have this. I mean, I, th- I think it was motivated by a national security concern. I don't. And I think it's kind of saying the same thing a little bit differently, but I just feel like um, suggesting that they're trying to make the investigation killable means that maybe they were fudging what the legal predicate would be to open it. And I I don't think so. I think in this case they would have been especially careful to make sure that they had, they reached the threshold of the legal predicate that was required. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. I think it's important to be precise in talking about this because as we've seen, you know, one of the first things uh, that, I did when I when I was reacting to this publicly on Twitter and elsewhere is I put out there, here's the questions that I think journalists should be asking. And one of the reasons I did that is because uh, a lot of journalists follow my Twitter feed. And I noticed when I had done that in previously, you know, Manu Raju went around and asked a lot of Congress people some of these questions. And I was glad to see it. Uh, And I think it's helpful back then just have Random Congress uh, members asked what, for example, in that case, uh, what did they think about the fact that the president was implicated in a crime here? I would love to know uh, what Congress people think about um, this FBI investigation and the FBI suspicions about Trump. And when he asked Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham's uh, response was uh, to attack the FBI. And I think, you know, we're starting to see here. Uh, and also there was this piece by Jonathan Turley. And that's one of the reasons why I, help, I try to give people a sense of the importance of the background of our guests, um, because, you know, I don't think Jonathan Turley knows much of anything about counterintelligence investigations. He's a law professor. And, you know, he was, you know, sort of uh, saying there was no there there. But I think I think there could be some, you know, what could end up happening here is uh, Trump's allies could use this as a way of uh, potentially criticizing the FBI. Yeah, no, and I think they absolutely will do that. And that's why I think that, as I wrote in my op-ed, the bigger question is uh, not how and why it was open, but whether it was closed. Because if this investigation, okay, let's say whatever, you know, the FBI, they're in this crazy situation, Comey gets fired, whether it's, you know, the idea that they need to protect the investigation or they are sitting on things that really demonstrate um, a severe threat to national security or both, they open this investigation and, you know, let's say that it does, it does fudge some protocols or because it's just so weird and it's never been done before. Um, I think that once that investigation is passed off to Mueller and it is in this, you know, kind of insulated, as you mentioned before, uh, fresh eyes with someone who doesn't have 
a vested interest. I mean, he obviously, I'm sure he uh, has deep affection for the FBI, having led it for 13 years, but, you know, he's not in the FBI anymore, and I think he would be able to have the objectivity to look at it if it was not a duly predicated investigation um, that could stand on its own, I think he would close it. And, you know, it's important to know what happened with that. Now, if it was open and it was based on a real national security threat, then we need to know, um, you know, where did it go? Because you don't close a national security investigation, a counterintelligence investigation, until either there's a determination that the threat no longer exists or you found a way to neutralize it in one of the ways that I've mentioned before. Um, so that's, I think, the bigger question, is what happened to it. I mean, do you agree with that? He's a guy who, who uh, you know, crosses his T's and dots his I's. I just don't see that he would be, he would hang on to any kind of, you know, fudgy and questionable counterintelligence investigation against the sitting president. I agree with that, but I think... What would also be useful, and you may be able to speak more to this to me, is to know what was the, you know, what 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 was the end result of the investigation? In other words, on the criminal side of things, I would close investigations for all sorts of reasons. One might be that I indicted and convicted 18 people. Another one might be a lack of evidence sufficient to indict anyone. And so... Um, which would be called declination. Now, I don't know what on the counterintelligence side what that would look like, but I could imagine that one could end an investigation because you didn't find sufficient evidence to take any action, and another in which you feel that any counterintelligence threats have been sufficiently exposed or, or, or so on. Right. You would close it if you believe that the national security threat was resolved. Um, so, yes, so either it, it doesn't exist, so there's nothing to address, or, uh, you know, you found a way to make it so that whatever the intelligence services can't act. I, it, it, unless, it was, unless they found that no threat existed or it ceased to exist, my whole point is when it's the President of the United States, they, it would have to remain open because I don't see how they would find a way to, as long as he's sitting in the Oval Office, he presents a threat. Because he has all of these ways of compromising the national security of the United States if he truly is putting the interests of another country over our own. What if they they think the public already knows everything about this and so that constrains him sufficiently? Does it look like that's happening? (laughs) I have no idea. I mean, I will say one thing that is – I'll make this as an interesting counterpoint. I mean, one can make the argument that Trump is wholly ineffective, that he never really – you know, one thing that I see from his administration is that, you know, he says a lot of things and then his administration appears to go in all sorts of different directions. It, you know, the, there's these reports of, you know, people in his administration just doing whatever they want, whether it's at an anonymous op-ed writer or, or, you know, reporting by Bob Woodward that people are taking things off of his desk. I mean, it's possible that people around him are constraining and his own ineffectiveness are constraining him so much that he doesn't actually get much done. Yeah, but I don't think that that is a, a sufficient, a legally sufficient basis for the FBI to close the investigation, right? It can't be, well, we're mostly reassured by an anonymous person who has said in the New York Times that, you know, they'll keep him in line. There needs to be something based in fact that, uh, you know, that this, because it's the threat, right? It's not that he, 
it's not only whether he is doing something, it's that he has the potential to do something. So just like if the FBI knew of a plot to blow up a building, right, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they interview, you know, they do some clandestine interviews of people who know the person they're looking at, and they're like, no, he would never do something like that. The FBI is going to be like, okay, case closed. We, we, we believe that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this will all be okay. Like, that's not an appropriate basis, um, a belief that things are just going to turn out okay because somebody's incompetent. Um, th- there has to be a way to resolve it, um, in fact, because as long as, you know, as, and as long as the adversary has access to him, which he continues to want to meet with Putin, um, you know, the the possibility of the threat reemerging, um, you know, is there. Yeah. The reason I asked that question is I think that's the thought process of many re- Republican elites. When I say elites, I mean the Republicans who are inside the Beltway, senators and so forth. I think that a lot of them... Th- Think, hey, you know, this guy really, you know, maybe there's some issue here, but he doesn't really get, you know, he can't really do much. He's constrained by all these people around him, and he's getting judges we like in or or something by along the way, those lines. That's also quite terrifying. It is. <laughs> and it's, it, it's very terrifying because these are the same people who want to spend $5 billion on a wall because of an abstract possibility that there could be some unnamed person who could be who could be a terrorist who's going to blow up some place that we don't I mean all of these are complete hypotheticals okay and yet they are willing to take preventative measures to even preclude the possibility of that ever manifesting and then you have this actual threat that is sitting there and yet they're willing to just go on their own gut feeling that it's just not going to you know the, the the risk is not that high um it's a very odd juxtaposition of their thinking um and you know somebody ought to make that contrast to them uh because they have you know an actual threat that they need to have some you know plan for if it it exists um but they don't seem to be worried about it at all so we've got so many questions. We get so many topics to cover, to, to cover, and I've got to even, and you know, I have John uh, Cipher waiting in the wings. Oh I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. But I've got to ask you, what do you make of this translator business, uh, where he's going and taking extra, uh, allegedly, according to the, the Washington Post, Donald Trump is going to taking extraordinary steps to prevent uh, anyone from his own administration to find out what he told to Putin, and he instructed his translator to give him the notes and not to tell anybody. It's scary. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, really. I mean, I, what can what is you? You we're getting to the point where it's hard to even articulate appropriate responses because the situations are so absurd. And you know, there is why on earth would a president need to meet with a hostile adversary without any witnesses present? and then to destroy even the minimal evidence that might exist from the person who was translating. It makes, there, there is only one reason, which is that th- that conversation could expose him to 
criminal liability to, uh, you know, to embarrassment. I mean, who knows what took place there? Um, But that is not consistent with the principles of transparency and accountability that we have in our government, even when we have acknowledged that, that certain branches need to have secrets. We always have a mechanism where those secrets are documented and ultimately uh, can be reviewed. Um, And he is totally violating that fundamental principle. Yeah, I I have to say uh, our listeners know that I'm very good at coming up with alternative explanations that the defense attorneys could potentially use for whether it's Paul Manafort or anyone else. Uh, This is a hard one. Uh, Maybe uh, Trump doesn't trust anyone else in the United States government, including his own administration. Uh, I don't know what alternative explanation there is here. I mean, it sounds pretty nefarious to me. So I just want to quickly touch on you. We we discussed on Twitter. This generated a lot of interest. Uh, You know, one thing I have also repeatedly been calling on in in Twitter is for the Democratic House uh, to subpoena this translator to get to the bottom of this, even if it's in a closed session. It appears that uh, Congressman Schiff has indicated that they will do that. And we've had, I think, a lengthy discussion of whether or not uh, that would whether or not there be executive privilege that would apply to those statements. What are your thoughts on that, Asha? Yeah, and I think we I think that there were some really good arguments made between you, me, and George Conway and Eric Columbus on Twitter. Um, I think it's a super interesting question. So I personally think that there could be a very strong argument for executive privilege. Uh, I think there, you know, the translator is ex- essentially an extension of the president, right? Like they. Uh, the, they're an agent of the president in the Senate. <laughs> it's hard to use that word and not get it confused with intelligence. But, um, you know, he needs that the person there is not there with any kind of uh, opinion of their own. They are simply there to make it make sense of what uh, the conversation is happening to each other. So then the question becomes, is that conversation uh, covered by executive privilege? And I think it is because the president has almost – plenary, you know, um, responsibility in in the realm of foreign affairs. He alone negotiates with heads of state. He represents the United States, um, you know, in in all matters external with other countries. And I think that is such a core Article II function, these diplomatic and uh, head of state conversations, that they are essential to the execution of his duties. Um, even more so, I think, than the deliberations with his own policy advisors in a lot of ways. And so I do think it would be covered by executive privilege. And, you know, this goes back to George Washington, who refused to turn over diplomatic communications to Congress. And that that was kind of started to set the stage for this concept of executive privilege, which ultimately gets articulated in U.S. v. Nixon. Um, So I think there's a strong claim there. I'm not saying that it would there could not be an exception to it in this case because of the national security concerns we have, but I do think we would want to be worried about Congress being able to I mean just imagine a future presidency, a normal one, <laughs> um, but one where there's political infighting. You don't want Congress to be able to essentially harass a sitting president by constantly calling in people who are going to uh reveal um, confidential communications that he might be having with heads of state in order to pursue legitimate U.S. objectives, and that could then undercut his, you know, authority and um, trust 
that other leaders have in him. So I guess just where I would come down in this, and one thing I should note for everybody that's listening is I don't, I, I certainly haven't litigated issues of executive privilege. I doubt that you have either, Asha, right? No, I have not. Uh, okay. I know it only as a kind of academic, you know, and legal concept. Exactly right. So uh, we're not, we are, this is outside of, I'd say, our core ac- areas of expertise. But I would just say that traditionally executive privilege is referring to the, the executive branch protecting internal conversations within that branch uh, against other, you know, the, the discovery by other branches of government. And so the reason that, my, you know, my response online was, well, there's no executive privilege issue because you have a third party there, Vladimir Putin. He's clearly not part of the United States government or the executive branch, or at least let's hope not, uh, you know, haha. Uh, but, you know, he's certainly a third party, so you don't have any privilege there. And it's all the cases that I've ever seen and looked at and read about are relating to internal deliberations of the executive branch. I don't know the extent to which foreign diplomatic conversations between the president and foreign leaders are protected by privilege. It's conceivable to me that you could protect them through other means besides privilege. In other words, those conversations are protected regardless of whether there's privilege to a great extent. I mean, we don't have privilege fights typically over those conversations. They occur and they're kept secret in the same way that the Coca-Cola recipe is kept secret. You know, no one knows about it. Uh, It's a secret that is stored in some vault somewhere. Uh, And, you know, it seems to me that there is a value in having certain members of Congress in certain controlled settings having access to that information because they provide important oversight and appropriations uh, and also at times the Senate ratifies treaties. So I I could see arguments both ways, but that's sort of outside my core area of expertise. So that's no, and I think that's right. I, I, I agree that there are strong arguments in both directions, and it's just a fascinating argument. And once again, as you mentioned, we typically don't have these issues come up, and that should tell us something because, you know, the very fact that we are asking so many novel questions about the limits of the presidency when it comes to possible foreign influence um, is just really, I, I think, a symptom of some serious dysfunction. I, have a, I want to change gears a little bit for a moment because there's a lot of questions I, I know I won't be able to get to. But in your conversation, you've actually answered many of the questions people had. Do you guys have what thoughts do you have as far as the timing of this New York Times article? And does it suggest anything? And do you think it's it's helpful for the media to cover something like this and to share this information? Asha? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, you know, I have been concerned ever since the start of this presidency, quite frankly, with how much the media has been able to report on what are supposed to be highly classified, top secret, secret compartmentalized investigations. (laughs) You know, um, these are not supposed to see the light of day, ever. FISAs are not supposed to see the light of day. People are not supposed to know about them. That's the whole point. That's why they are all taking place in a secret court. Um, and that's both to protect the the subject because they aren't necessarily being accused of a crime. These are different kinds of investigations, so you don't want them, um, you know, maligned in a way when you don't know what the, what the findings will be. Um, 
but also to protect the national security of the United States. And so the very fact that the the New York Times is able to know that there was a top-secret counterintelligence investigation open on the President of the United States, I mean, I have to believe that that leak is coming from Congress. Um, and I don't think it would be coming from the FBI um, or from Mueller's team. I mean, it's been over a year and a half, so I don't see why it would suddenly come from there. Um, but that's that's my thought on it. I mean, I find it very troubling and problematic, to be quite honest. As much as, you know, now as a member, you know, a civilian person that just is living my life, I'm glad to know of it. Um, on the other hand, I do, having been on the inside, I think that it is a problem so, for the people who do this kind of work. Yeah, I, I, would ha- I would have to say, first of all, just... I don't talk about the conversations that I have sort of on background with journalists, but I my sent, you know, I will just say throughout the course of the entire Trump Russia story over the last couple of years, uh, many of the leaks, most of the leaks appear to have been from Congress based on the conversations that I've had with them. Uh, I will note that um, Trump and his allies have been the ones pushing in many cases for the disclosure of a lot of secret uh, yeah. government workings, as you noted, like the FISA warrants and so forth. Um, I, I, in this particular case, uh, I think it, it very well may be the right thing for the American people, even though it's the wrong thing for the way that we uh, do business as a government. Uh, although I, I am very sad to see that it is not, um, it doesn't appear to be having a significant impact in where Republicans uh, are coming here. And, and it was disturbing for me to find out that it looks like we can infer from some of the comments and refusal to comment about this from the Gang of Eight and refusal to answer questions about their briefings, that they may have been briefed about this at the very beginning when Mueller is appointed. And if that's the case, that the Gang of Eight, that includes Devin Nunez, uh, that includes Mitch McConnell, if, if these folks were briefed in the beginning that the FBI believes that there's there's a good reason to be concerned about the president of the United States uh, working on Russia's behalf, their behavior is to- over the last couple of years is just totally incomprehensible to me. I mean, the whole point yeah. of going to the United States Senate or United States Congress is to do important things on behalf of the American people to make a difference. How the hell can you think that you are representing the American people and not take seriously an allegation like that? I, it blows my mind. No, I completely agree with you. And I, and them briefing, the FBI briefing the Gang of Eight would make sense in terms of then if any leaks came from Congress, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would have been how it would have been uh, shared with them. Yeah, there's a, there are, I mean, there's obviously a lot of questions. And you mentioned earlier that we may never know what findings uh, were. This is all going to be sealed, isn't it, for the most part, unless something explosive happens? Well, I mean, I think we should, or I think someone should. I mean, I think that this needs to go to Congress um, because, again, just to repeat, the only way to address it is to – because the FBI cannot take the normal means that it would take, is to give it to a body that can do something about it. Um, You know, Congress has the power to impeach and remove the president, which is really the ultimate, you know, form of neutralization of the president uh, to get him away from all the bad things that he could do. Um, But they, they can't exercise that if they don't have 
the full picture. I think it's possible that the public may not know. I'm sure most of it is highly classified. I think eventually they will. Um, But really from the beginning, what Congress should have done is what they did with 9-11, which is to have a bipartisan commission that could explore this in detail and provide a non-classified, an unclassified report the way they did with the 9-11 report, Um, you know, which did not, and I'm sure to this day doesn't contain intelligence that they still don't feel can be revealed to the public, but still gave the public an accounting of how it took place and what recommendations, you know, they have for moving forward. Yeah, I've got to say one thing that I've talked a little bit about publicly um, is that I don't even know at the end of Mueller's investigation whether there's going to be a report along the lines of what people are expecting. In other words, I think people are expecting some 500-page report with hundreds and hundreds of pages of exhibits, and there's yeah. no reason under the regulations to believe that there's something that will be look like that. I mean, you could he could produce a, a 20 or 30-page cursory report that very briefly right. explains his reasons for indicting certain people and not indicting others, a, a very and and comply with that regulation. So we don't know what form anything is going to take. Um, but one thing I will say is. Um, b- boy, after this weekend, the election results seem to be even more important. I mean, people's votes that, that flip the House really make a difference. The, the, having Adam Schiff versus Devin Nunez as the head of the House Intelligence Committee uh, dramatically is going to change how the House of Representatives uh, you know, follows up on these uh, revelations. Absolutely. And I guess just to close up, because I know you need to talk to John, Uh, With regard to the report and what form it takes, I think it's important to also note that when the special counsel regulations were written, you know, they had Watergate in mind. They had all kinds of criminal activity uh, in mind that they tried to make sure they, you know, accounted for all the possibilities. They didn't have a counterintelligence situation in mind when those were written. Um, and I, and I know this because I've talked at, uh, talked at length about this with uh, Neil Katyal, who drafted these regs when he was at DOJ. He, he just said, well, yeah, it never occurred to us that there could be a counterintelligence side, which is why, as Renato said, what it contemplates at the end is a report delineating the list of the charges that the special counsel wishes to pursue or not wish to pursue. Exactly, which is a very a very criminal investigation way of looking at it. In other words, when I yeah. would finish my criminal cases, I would write a, a form. If I didn't indict people, uh, which would would be one resolution uh, for that particular person, for every individual that wasn't indicted uh, or in char- or, disp- or charged in some way, there would be a form that I would fill out that would be short. That would ex- give an explanation for why I was declining to go forward as to that particular person. And so, um, you know, that's where I think they were going with this. Uh, and it, like you're, you're saying, Ash, it has nothing to do with the counterintelligence uh, context. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 as you point out, we do have obviously have another guest to get to. But I will just say I could talk to you about subjects like this for hours. And <laughs> uh, and one of the yeah, one of the wonderful uh, things that has come from this uh, national crisis has been that I have learned a lot from you throughout this process, and I think as a result, hopefully our listeners have as well. I know I have. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
So now let's bring in John Seifer. Uh, he retired in 2014 after a 28-year career in the CIA's National Clandestine Service, which included serving in Moscow and running the CIA's Russia operations. Uh, I can't think of anybody better to talk about this topic. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, John, can you help us understand? I I will tell you, even though I was a a federal prosecutor, I wasn't on the national security side. And so even my knowledge is limited to these subjects. So can you explain to us what is uh, as much as you are able to what a CIA officer does? Uh, well, there's there's a variety of CIA officers. So the CIA has, you know, a large analytic element, which takes intelligence from everywhere, from diplomats and satellites and NSA and and uh, CIA human collectors overseas and synthesizes and analyzes and puts it together for policymakers. They also have a large sort of science and technology piece that does, you know, uses science and, and things for spying. But then uh, sort of the core of the CIA is its human intelligence. So it's the clandestine service. It's people who serve overseas, whose job is to try to find, uh, recruit, and run spies in places that have information that we can't get any other way. So if we can get information through diplomats or open source material or even from you know overhead collection or something, we don't need to try to uh, manipulate someone into giving us intelligence or, or stealing it from inside. But, but when, it, when there's no other way to get it, that's what uh, those of us in the clandestine service do. I think some listeners may wonder what, what the division of labor is between the FBI and the CIA when it comes to intelligence and counterintelligence uh, activities, because it seems like b- both uh, agencies are involved to some extent. They do, and we work together quite a bit. The, the, the fundamental difference is the CIA is a foreign intelligence agency. Our job is to collect foreign intelligence from overseas, not from the United States. Now, there is some overlap because some of the information that we co- may collect overseas may involve Americans, and I think that's some of the stuff we're talking about today. If, if there's an American who might be um, spying or providing information to a foreign government and we collect that overseas by you know, recruiting one of their spies that tells us that stuff, we then have to work with the FBI, whose job is to do counterintelligence in the United States. And, and counterintelligence is just a means of thwarting and stopping other countries from doing intelligence activities against the United States. Is it safe to say that um, on a regular basis, our adversaries, other foreign countries, are conducting surveillance and other activities within the United States? Oh, yes. I think for most or for many countries, the United States is the prime intelligence target. You know, we're the richest country in the world. Uh, we have interest in, in, you know, we're like the elephant. You know, if we sneeze, everybody else catches a cold. And so I think most countries want to know what the Americans are up to, and they want to have inside knowledge into that. So they use their diplomats to collect information, develop relationships, but they also use spies and spy um techniques to try to collect and steal information from the United States. I have a question, uh, and, I, and I saw that you uh, directly answered uh, one of our listeners on Twitter uh, in the in the uh, terms of using the word asset, as the New York Times does, as, as far as the FBI's investigation. You said that means something very specific to the CIA. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, 
Well, it's interesting because of this this story that the the FBI opened a counterintelligence, excuse me, a counterintelligence investigation potentially into the president. Um, you have to sort of understand how the Russians uh, do intelligence, and I'll get into that in a second. But for us, when I work overseas and I find someone who has access to information we can't get any other way, and find out that that person has specific vulnerabilities or personalities or reasons to want to share that information with me, that person becomes an asset of mine, a controlled asset. The way a clandestine officer in the United States gets promoted is by finding people with that kind of information that we can't get other ways, convincing that person to steal and spy for us, and then keep that person safe to run that for years if possible for as long as we need to. So that person becomes, in our world, a controlled asset, someone who is working wittingly on behalf of the U.S. government, following our directions, keeping themselves safe, and, uh, and providing information that we need. So to us, that's an asset. It's, it, means, it means that person is witting, they know that they're working for the CIA, for the U.S. government, and they're following our direction. And so, for example, one thing that we've, one, one term that I've heard used in the intelligence world is sort of unwitting, uh, uh, unwitting participants. And then I've also heard the term useful idiot. Uh, can you, can you <laughs> tell us ha, what, what either of those terms term, yeah. Yeah, mean to you? So for, so for Western intelligence agencies, or at least for the CIA, um, again, like I said, we are looking for people who are controlled sources, controlled assets that work for us uh, and hopefully stay in place and, and pass us information we can't get in other ways. The Russians and the Soviets before them for a long time had a much sort of wider view of, of intelligence and how they use intelligence, because it, it isn't just collecting information and passing it to policymakers. It's also being involved in subversion and disinformation and fake news and all these things we saw in 2016. So in our parlance, we want someone who is a controlled asset, who works for us, spies for us, and knows what they're doing, follows our direction. The Russians use a much wider variety of sources, if you will. So they have people who are what they call useful idiots. They're like propagandists who follow the Russian line and may unwittingly or unknowingly be saying things that support Russian foreign policy. And that is a term of art they've used before, useful idiots. During the Cold War, you probably heard the term fellow traveler. These are people who are intellectually sympathetic with the Russians or the Soviet things. And we're, we're sort of working on behalf of the Soviet Union without being a controlled asset, right? And then also there's things called like a witting collaborator, someone who sort of helps out from time to time. They know they're helping the Russian services, but they're not necessarily getting paid or under the complete control. And then there's people like I talked about, controlled sources. And so they use a much sort of wider variety of people to meet their foreign policy needs than we tend to in the West. So when we talk about the Russians and what they might doing might be doing, and you look at this, for example, in relation to Donald Trump, there's a variety of things that could be going on here. It's hard for me to imagine him as a controlled asset, as a, as, you know, as a spy being met under bridges and alleys with a, a Russian intelligence officer. But he certainly could be someone who is doing the bidding of the Russians, either in a witting or unwitting fashion. So, you know, for me, as somebody who doesn't have an intelligence or counterintelligence background at all, uh, but, you know, is a lawyer and was a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor for a decade, I was alarmed by that story. It seemed like very serious news to me. 
I wonder how what that story meant to you. How did you how what was your reaction to this news that there was a counterintelligence investigation opened into Trump? Yeah, I find that very, very interesting. Um, I think a lot of people are sort of out ahead on their skis here by, you know, writing that he's an asset of the Russian services. I don't I'm not ready to say something like that yet. Obviously, his activities and the things he's done for the last several years benefit the Russians and are detrimental in many ways to the United States and, and traditional United States foreign policy. But the notion that he is a controlled spy for the Russians uh, just doesn't fit with me. In fact, you know, when I mention someone who works for us as a controlled asset that has to follow our direction and keep themselves safe, can you imagine trying to meet Donald Trump and have him follow your direction and, and, and <laughs> not do the wrong thing or, or meet in the right place, all those kind of things? He would be, he'd be the worst possible source you can imagine. Um, but that said, yes, I think this is incredibly troubling There's a, on a number of levels. For the FBI to do something that they would know very, very well was, was politically dangerous, dangerous for them to investigate a sitting president of the United States, they had to have a predicate. They had to have a reason that they thought they had to do that that um, was very, very troubling. Um, you know, I don't know what they found, but for them to open that kind of investigation really suggests something that we all should be worried about. If uh, let me ask you this, let's say that all they had was what w has been referenced publicly about the firing of Comey, Trump's statement regarding uh, his re to Lester Holt regarding his reasons for that. He, and then the, this memo, which we don't have publicly, but you can imagine whatever the worst possible reasons are that he wrote in, in this memo that was dictated by. Uh, Steve, by him to Stephen Miller, you know, about why he wanted to fire Comey. Let's say he, he wanted to quash the Russia investigation or so forth. Would that, do, to you, warrant such a step by the FBI? You know, I, I, I'm not a counterintelligence officer or, you know, have been in that legal process, so um, it's hard for me to say for sure. I would think not. You know, for the most part, you know, that stuff, there are political ways to deal with that as opposed to a sort of official FBI investigation. And there's also an ongoing investigation looking into Russian activity that would, you know, tangentially involve activities by the president so that you would have a means to sort of find out the worst of things you're looking for. So for them to have turned and made this into a specific investigation of the president, I find that really unusual, uh, potentially sort of constitutionally dangerous, but it either means that they were very confident and they had something very strong or, or they may have gotten ahead of themselves, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment. What do you make, John, of this uh, story that we also uh, learned about over the weekend where the Washington Post said that Trump was was taking extraordinary steps to prevent other people in his own administration from being uh, informed of his conversations with Putin and it, you know, instructed the translator to uh, give her uh, to give her notes to him and not to tell others about it. Yeah, I, I think that's just some additional detail on stuff that's already been reported. Um, and I found it at the time shocking, outrageous and against sort of basic principles, because when you're dealing with the leader of a foreign power or in these summit things, you know, it's on behalf of U.S. policy. You know, the president took an oath to the Constitution and, and to, you know, to make and support U.S. policy. So if you're having your own personal agenda, 
and not involving the key, you know, players, uh, that's really, really unusual. Now you take it one step further and you think this is someone who's, who's Vladimir Putin. We probably should have, shouldn't have met him in any event. He had just attacked the United States. He had taken a number of actions around the world against our interests. Um, it was really sort of a gift to him to agree that the most powerful, you know, president of the most powerful country in the, in the world was willing to meet with Vladimir Putin from a small and much weaker country who had been attacking us. So I thought it was a surprise that we would actually agree to meet with him. But then when you do that and you hide what you talk about, especially when all these other issues are out there about the election and about Russian interference and Russian hacking and Russian um, trolls, bots, disinformation and deception operations, very, very troubling, absolutely. One thing that I'm curious about is this Russian uh, disinformation campaign, and also they had obviously a hacking operation in the United States. How much did did it surprise you that that took place uh, in 2016? Well, it didn't surprise me at all. I mean, having worked much of my career on Russian things and and, and in Russia, you know, we have to remember the Russian the Russians are the ones that have been consistent here. They have seen us as the main enemy. And they have tried to damage the United States and damage our relationship with our Western partners consistently over time. Also, throughout the Cold War, uh, unstintingly, all the way up through 2016, they have been trying to create problems, sow chaos, um, spread disinformation in the United States. Um, I think what we need to look at 2016 is sort of why did it, why was it different then? Why did it have such an effect in 2016 if this has been going on? essentially forever, which I contend that it has been. And there's a number of reasons. I mean, I think we were so focused on terrorism that we took our eye off the ball a little bit in terms of what the Russians were up to. I think the nature of social media and things like that are such that they could weaponize um, things that they used to do in the past. You know, they, they used to create these false narratives that the United States had created the AIDS crisis, that we were selling baby parts around the world, that we were involved in assassinations, all these fake stories that they would spread around the world. But now you could just use uh, Facebook and Twitter and allow the algorithms to spread that information far and wide. I also think Putin's hatred of, of Mrs. Clinton was such that he was willing to take even, even greater risks before. But I think the most, the, the, probably the most important thing that made 2016 different was that, you know, our tribal and hyper-partisan nature, you know, was sort of, fodder for them to use. Their job is to sow chaos and turn Americans against each other and against their allies. And the fact is we were already going after each other and tearing into each other. And all they did is throw a little gas on the fire to try to exploit something that was already happening. So um, I think 2016, it's probably good so that we took a look at that and we'll, we'll focus and improve our uh, ability to defend ourselves in the future. But I don't think it was new. Uh, so one thing I'm, you know, I'm curious about is the the extent to which there's parallels between what the Russians did in the United States in 2016 and what they've done elsewhere. You know, for instance, they've obviously been very active in the Baltic states, uh, members of NATO, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, in disinformation campaigns there, uh, hacking efforts. Uh, can we see any parallels between what the Russians have done in other nations and what they did to the United States in 2016? Oh, yes, very much. And in fact, we probably, you know, at this point, if we start to look at this, can, can lean on and learn from some of our allies. Um, 
you know, the Estonians and others have been facing this for a long time. Places like Sweden and uh, places in Northern Europe that have been seeing Russian disinformation activities even, you know, have, there's, I think it's in Sweden, they have a nightly show about this week in, in Russian disinformation and how to deal with it. Um, the Russians were involved in taking advantage of and attacking politics in Spain. They tried to assassinate the prime minister of Montenegro, excuse me, the president of Montenegro. Um, they're doing these things in a, in a you know, hyper-weaponized way in Ukraine and other places. So I think you know, there's a lot that we can learn from what they're doing around the world. They're supporting these you know, violent groups and right-wing groups and putting money into the system and, and spreading disinformation. It's not just us. It, you know, it's the Russians' way of defending themselves. At the end of the day, these are, these are um, hybrid you know, political warfare tactics. These are asymmetric warfare. It's like terrorism. If you're weaker than your opponent, you look for the weaknesses in their system and exploit them. And this is what the Russians are doing. The Russians are much weaker than we are. And so what they're doing is they're looking for our, our weaknesses to exploit and take advantage of, almost like a terrorist would do. You know, earlier uh, we were talking to Asha and she was saying how difficult this whole thing is if President Trump is, uh, you know, acting on behalf of or doing anything to benefit Russia. It's it's difficult to neutralize him. What are your thoughts on, on that in order to protect the, the national security? What steps can be taken? Well, I do. I, I do think it's really hard. Um, and I can give you some examples from my experience um, to prove espionage. So these counterintelligence investigations, I'm sure Asha mentioned you know, the great majority of them uh, don't necessarily, you know, find somebody guilty or end up with somebody in jail. I mean, obviously, the goal of a counterintelligence investigation, unlike a criminal investigation, is to stop and thwart the foreign actor. You know, if they can then make a case and put someone in jail, that's, that's, that's great. Um, but the problem with a counterintelligence investigation often is there's secrecy that's part of the system, whereas... You know, as you well know, in the, in the criminal law, you know, openness is part of the system. Uh, in, in counterintelligence, you know, oftentimes the sources are ones that can't be used in court. Um, some of the information that led to the leads can't be used in court. Um, defense attorneys can use gray mail and other things to, to keep information out of, you know, out of court. So it's much harder to, to prove espionage. And so that's what I, you know, I worry about here. In the past, when we, we, we've made counterintelligence arrests, it's because we were able to catch the people red-handed. We got onto them, we got leads, we, got, we investigated, and, and we, we found them and caught them. In this case, you know, information on the people around Mr. Trump and his campaign and others came out such that you know, it, they're not likely to go back to the well. We're not likely to catch them red-handed. So to find information that can be used in a court to, to find somebody guilty is going to be very hard, especially when on the other side is not just a, you know, a normal criminal. It's a secret intelligence service you know, whose whole job is to keep information away from us. In fact, you know, I think one case that a lot of our listeners have paid some attention to in which you could see the issues playing out of, of bringing uh, criminal action based on a counterintelligence investigation is – the criminal uh, the criminal indictment of the Russian uh, internet research agency uh, company that uh, Mueller brought 
that you know he he also charged a number of intelligence operatives that were involved in that that have not obviously come to the United States to uh, have their day in court. But that corporation hired lawyers and has done a lot of things to try to challenge Mueller and to gain uh, access to discovery that could be used by the Russians. Uh, and that is the downside potentially of trying to bring criminal charges based on a counterintelligence investigation. Well, I mean, as you know, our system is set up to be fair and protect people who are charged with crimes. And so they have you know, quite a bit of leeway and lawyers can do you know, everything to throw out evidence and all these other kind of things. You know, a foreign intelligence service knows how to play that system and knows how to avoid some of those pitfalls. That's why I think, you know, coming up with arrests in espionage cases are particularly hard. Uh, when I was running or involved in our Russia program, we were involved working with the FBI on tracking and eventually arresting Robert Hansen, the FBI special agent who was spying for more than 20 years for the Russians. And what was interesting to me as an intelligence officer and not, you know, a law enforcement officer was just how hard it is to make that case. We had so much evidence and so much, well, evidence is the wrong term, so much intelligence and information that would convince anybody who read it that Robert Hansen was spying for the Russians. However, when he went to the Justice Department thinking to make a case, you know, they hesitated for all these reasons, like, okay, a good lawyer could look at these sources and couldn't bring them to the stand and could throw stuff out. You know, and they could make the trial a circus, and people don't understand these intelligence issues. And so it was interesting to me when something was so obvious, yet they still didn't want to bring a case. Now, in that case, we continued to watch him, and we caught him red-handed. So it changed the, it changed the uh, dynamic, and we were able to arrest him. But it made it clear to me that it's really hard to prove espionage. You know, it's a really interesting perspective, John. And and one thing that a lot of listeners in this podcast are familiar with is me trying to explain to them how challenging it can be to prove things in court beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, I was uh, more on the white collar crime side of things, which is also of interest uh, in this, uh, you know, various uh, the various scandals surrounding the Trump administration. And I try to explain the challenges of proving that. And a lot of folks can't have trouble getting their head around it. But I, I hope that listeners can understand the distinction that John is raising here, because it's it, it's one thing to be able to have enough evidence that you could show your friends and they would like, oh, yeah, come on, this guy's got to be doing it. Uh, but when you get into a courtroom and some of that evidence might be excluded because it's not uh, admissible under the federal rules of evidence. And then there's, um, you know, other various arguments that could be made in that setting. It can be more challenging uh, given the burden of proof that the government has. Um, That's right. And then add, add to it, you know, secret programs that might give us the information. If you remember the Cold War, the Venona program was our way where we were able to break some of the Soviet communications and find out about a number of Americans that were spying for the Russians. However, many of those, those things could never come to court because we couldn't give up the knowledge that we were breaking their communications. So if we arrested one person, brought it to court, found them guilty, and therefore lost a program that, you know, was uncovering, you know, a tremendous amount of stuff, uh, you know, the government made the decision it was better to not arrest some of these people than it was to lose that program. 
Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, you know, mo, I used to, when I was a federal prosecutor, there, we I would joke with the prosecutors who handled the national security cases because they would rarely be in court or having trials. And I would joke about, you know, whatever they were doing in their office, writing memos, you know, about cruise missile strikes or uh, James <laughs> Bond, James Bond, authorizing James Bond to kill people or whatever they did. Uh, but it's the, the, the truth of the matter is these things often don't end up in court, as you as you and Asha had earlier mentioned. You know, one thing I'm curious that's a little beyond what we've been talking about today, but I think it's an important, it feeds right into what we were discussing. You know, a lot of our listeners have read this document that's been titled the Steele Dossier. It's got a lot of what I'll call raw mm-hmm. intelligence information in it. In other words, lots of various things that were told uh, by, uh, you know, various sources, perhaps second even or second or third hand to Mr. Steele, who compiled them into a dossier. You know, what is what does that look like to you as somebody who is in that in that intelligence world? Well, I remember when I first saw them that it looked very much like British raw intelligence reporting. And it turns out that's what it was. He was a British intelligence officer doing similar work to the kind of work we do. And so when we meet with people overseas and we're developing these relationships with people, we're often writing back to our headquarters about everything, about what makes that person tick, what kind of source it is, what kind of access they had. And as they provide information to us, we then report what that source says. As part of that relationship, we'll then test that against other information, look at that source, see if it makes sense, all these type of things. We call that raw reporting. That is simply put into a put together with a variety of other reporting to see whether it makes sense and it fits into the mosaic before we would ever put out what we call finished intelligence to the community. And so essentially what Mr. Steele was doing was what we do. He had a variety of sources. His sources were telling him things. He was accurately reporting what the source said. He should also then separately, which we didn't see, be providing reporting on on the ego, the motivation, the um, peccadillos, and all these other things of his sources so he could try to put you know, sort of level how important each source was so you can maybe trust the information more or less. But in this case, I think it's, it, it's funny how people are continuing, you know, mostly on the right now to attack the Steele dossier. The dossier was nothing more than a series, essentially, of leads that investigators could look at. If those leads didn't pan out, the FBI wouldn't spend another minute on, on any of that information. They would move on to other things. But if those leads, you know, Mr. Cohen traveling, uh, you know, to pay off some of these hackers, for example, or Manafort, you know, being involved with the Ukrainian prime minister and taking money from him or all these things. Those things, professional investigators who can look at travel records, they can look at phone records, they can work with foreign intelligence and law enforcement organizations to try to put this together. And if it turns out that some of those leads are worth investigating and following up on, absolutely they would do that. It wouldn't matter where the lead started in the Steele dossier. It's whether the stuff was true or not. And anything that looked not to be true, they would they would uh, disregard. So I, I think it was, you know, it was probably something useful to the FBI that, that maybe got them started on some things. But, you know, for those who are upset about it, if it was not true, the FBI wouldn't try to make it true because they still have to go to judges and others and prove their case. And, it, you know, if they had nothing other than that, those raw reports, a judge would throw it out, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. I, I will say it, what it looked to me like is a lot of the 
raw, uh, you know, you know, leads that that I would receive even on the criminal side about all sorts of criminal activity. Uh, we, I, you know, we would receive leads like that, for example, about Mexican drug cartels. You know, Chapo Guzman's doing A, B, C, D, and E, uh, and then it would be up to the United States. Uh, uh, federal government, the DEA, and and federal prosecutors, and so on, to figure out what to do with that. But you know that that raw intelligence would never be like thrown into a a courtroom or put in front of a judge by itself. What would happen is, uh, you know, that would be followed up on in some way, and additional ever, uh, evidence would be provided in addition to recounting whatever the raw intelligence was. Um, I, I do have a quick question. I'm not sure if we cover this uh, quite as much as some people would like to know about the relationship between the, uh, the intelligence organizations like the CIA, the NSA, and the law organiza- organizations like the FBI, the DOJ. Is there ever a communication mm-hmm. between those staffs? Oh, absolutely. So when I was working, for example, I said I was on our sort of worldwide Russia program, managing our our uh, people in Moscow, but around the world, you know, going after Russian sources. We had. FBI officers in my office that worked for me um, because anything that we would collect overseas that, that could support what the FBI was doing on the counterintelligence side, uh, it would be immediately shared with them. On something I mentioned like before on the Hansen case, um, that case could not have come to fruition without the FBI and the CIA working absolutely closely together. And, you know, NSA information often serves as, for leads for both, both sides as well. Um, so, so, yes, there's quite a bit of work, and there's also a lot of work between, say, CIA and, and their counterparts overseas. So when, you know, when I'm working anywhere overseas, even in places that are somewhat hostile to us, you know, we have a relationship with the local uh, intelligence service, security service, often military service, and police um, to share information where it's appropriate and, uh, and sort of work together. So, you know, a good portion of the intelligence that the United States collects is through partners and colleagues overseas. One thing, John, that I think a lot of our listeners have on their mind is how it is that people are recruited, whether it's to uh, whether it's to be a direct uh, asset like the, the the type you were talking about, or somebody who is a more unwitting uh, person to you know unwittingly aiding a uh, foreign government. How do people get recruited, generally speaking, uh, to, to do one of those things? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a tough, it's, it's a bit of an art form. It really has, comes down to, you know, personal relationships and, and trust. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an area where, you know, betrayal is a, is a big issue. So, you know, if, I, if you're working overseas and you're meeting people, uh, you're trying to develop relationships with them, you're trying to um, assess their psychology and what makes them tick, is there something about their bosses that they dislike? Is there something about their ego? Do they have personal needs or financial needs that you might be able to meet in return for them working with you? So it's a long, slow process. Most people don't want to you know, be traitors of their countries or spy on behalf of the United States or anybody else. And so it's, it's a sifting and looking through process. And then even as you meet people, it's sort of vetting and validating and making sure it makes sense and and developing a, you know, a deep relationship with these people. Because if someone is, is willing essentially to break with their own government and meet you secretly uh, and pass you information, oftentimes this is, this is stuff they can't even tell their own family about. Um, they have very, very deep and strong reasons for doing this. And so that relationship, personal relationship, becomes really, really important. 
when you mention the part, now that's what I call for, you know, controlled source, what I was talking about before. When we were talking about these things about, you know, is Mr. Trump a source or an asset of the Russians? I don't think he went through that process because I don't think um, any intelligence officers worth his salt would, you know, try to work with Mr. Trump because he's untrustworthy. But I do think some of these things that we talked about before, useful idiot things or others, are stuff that we should look at. I mean, there's almost a convergence of interests between Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump. You know, they both want chaos in the U.S. system. They both sort of, in many ways, behave like gangsters. They both want to weak Europe. Um, they both are looking to weaken NATO. They both want to weaken the FBI and the CIA. They both, you know, have sort of personal things where they feel disrespected and they like to blame others and create straw men. So there's a lot of things that I think are, are similar between them. And I think, you know, if I was to say what is it about Donald Trump that makes him work on behalf of the Russians, I don't think it's that somebody, you know, pitched him and recruited him in a hotel room somewhere. I think it's more likely that, you know, he's been involved in sort of petty gangster sort of criminal things for a number of years, much like, you know, the oligarchs and cronies of Mr. Putin in Russia. And there's almost a an un spoken sort of system by which all the people in those kind of systems involved in sort of crime are are complicit and they sort of play along with the system everybody is complicit everybody knows that that uh, other people have the goods on you you can't really attack them because you don't know how much they have on you and so this sort of system amongst gangsters seems to work together here so in my view i don't think mr trump has a is a paid asset of the Russian service. But I do think there's a convergence of interest um, that makes him act in the way he does, because it, otherwise it just doesn't make sense why he is so beholden to Mr. Putin. Yeah, I have to say when I, when when Trump was running for office, some of the things he said that alarmed me were things that I think most voters weren't focused on, but things like, for example, you know, him attacking NATO and and uh, essentially suggesting that the United States shouldn't be defending our NATO allies uh, when NATO, of course, is not only uh, an, an important uh, pillar of security and stability for the world, but an important uh, uh, sort of uh, center of United States foreign policy and our national interest. You know, I was worried that if, if President Trump was elected, that Vladimir Putin might invade some of these states like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Um, it's hard to explain that break from the tradition of American foreign policy and and how the United States has traditionally seen the world to me without seeing at least an affinity for Russia and Putin in some fashion. Yeah, I mean, separating the United States from NATO has been Putin's number one goal for probably most of his life. You know, the, the one thing he doesn't want to do is look to his West and see a unified and powerful Western alliance. If he can deal with states sort of one-on-one -on -one and, uh, you know, pressure some of them and, and keep some of them at bay, I, this really, really benefits him. So it's quite a gift to Mr. Putin to try to weaken NATO or our relationship with our Euros European partners. And, and, you know, frankly, I don't get it either. One, one question that I want to leave you with, I know we've been taking up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate this, John, uh, is what do, what do we do as a country— if it turns out that that the, at the conclusion of Mr. Mueller's investigation, uh, there appears to be evidence that the president is compromised by Russia in some way, 
but there isn't evidence sufficient to prove that he committed crimes associated with that. Uh, you know, the situation we talked about earlier, how difficult it can be to prove these things beyond a reasonable doubt. What do you, what is, what, where does that leave us as a country and what do we do with that? <laughs> yeah, that, that question is way too big for me and you, for all of us. It's, it's a, we've never been there. It's really a difficult thing to even comprehend. But I think, you know, our, our founders were quite, you know, brilliant in fact that they sort of saw that these things might come along and they understood that, you know, probably the legal system or other systems weren't the way that could solve our most pressing problems. They were political problems. This is a political issue. And impeachment, in fact, is a political issue where we where is a means to get rid of a president that you believe is not working on behalf of the United States or fulfilling his or her oath. So um, I think what it does is it throws this issue into the political sphere, probably is the right place where it should be. Now, will the information that comes from Mr. Mueller and others be so strong that um, some of these Republicans in the Senate and House will understand that they, you know, the, the country is a bigger issue than Mr. Trump and, and, and change the way that they've been behaving up until now? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but some of the things that have been happening, even just in the last months, are so so troubling. You you wonder, just like we did with Watergate, at what point will some of these Republicans, uh, you know, turn on the president? And I just I don't know the answer any better than anybody else does. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And I want to tell our listeners, I, you know, I follow John on Twitter. Uh, his handle is John J O H N underscore S I P H E R. Uh, and I one thing I really appreciate you about about you, John, is you're somebody who has an immense amount of experience and knowledge and you're thoughtful and 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 limited about what you say. There's a lot of people who are out there talking a mile a minute who don't have the experience to back that up. And so I really admire uh, you and what you say. And I think I've learned a lot from you, not only uh, today, but uh, but beyond that. So thank you so much. That was great. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 